Welcome to MPA Connections, your host, Lashanti the Siren. This podcast will be diving into the MPA Connect network. This network exists to connect MPA managers across the Caribbean. In this special series, each episode will feature interviews with managers from across the network to show how this initiative is meeting the real needs of MPA managers by tapping into the wealth of real world experience and inspiring new approaches and ideas for their marine protected areas. Today, our guest is Amanda Acosta from Belize Audubon Society. Welcome Amanda to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. So my name is Amanda Acosta. I am the Executive Director of Belize Audubon Society. We are a NEO who has been given co-management of seven national protected areas. Um, two of them are marine oriented. So we have Blue Hole, Half Moon Key, Blue Hole and Half Moon Key Natural Monuments, which are part of the Belize Barrier Reef Composite Site, our national world heritage site. Awesome. So before we get into the work and some of the things you're currently doing at the Belize Audubon Society, can you give us a brief introduction about who you are? Like, how did you get into conservation? How did you find yourself here as the executive director of the Belize Audubon Society? So from when I was really small, I've, I had a dream of saying I'm going to be a marine biologist. And I, I was, I think I was like 10 or 12. And my parents used to take us all around the country, so I'm very familiar with Belize. Um, and so I just decided, I don't I don't think I even knew what it meant. I kept saying, yeah, I'm gonna be a marine biologist. And, and I was on that trajectory um, in Belize, um, as many Caribbean countries, we have to pick our majors in third year of high school. And so I went into the sciences. I, I enjoy the sciences actually. Um, I then went to the United States. Um, I studied in Charleston, South Carolina, um, and I did a degree in biology with concentration in marine. So I was going towards marine biology, and then I realized I don't want to really do research my whole life. Um, I, I, I like research, but I wasn't sure like what would be my focus area. And so I kind of started to do to waver back and forth. Um, and then I ended up in Florida doing my master's in coastal zone management. So I I went a little bit off, still still within the conservation field, but a little off course. When I came to Belize, um, I ended up not getting a job in those fields. Um, I actually went into the local university and I was teaching. So um, yeah, I taught at the local university at the associate level and the bachelor's level for almost six years. Um, and at that time, I started to get involved in um, different committees, national level councils, um, reviewing environmental impact assessments. And I really um, started to transform my direction of where I was going professionally. And I moved on to Belize Audubon Society. Um, and I've been here ever since. I've been at Belize Audubon for almost 12 years now. Um, not all as the executive director, I've been promoted up to this post, but um, I really enjoy what we are doing here. Um, it fits well with someone who is interested in a little bit of everything because we manage terrestrial and marine sites. We do science, we do education, we do community outreach. So it's very diverse. Um, and I really enjoy that part of it. 
I think it's always so great when executive directors have actually come and climbed their way up the organization because you're then able to experience the different parts of it and really see like from the ground up. And then now that you're up on the top, it's easier for you to kind of manage and understand some of the you know challenges that staff go through on a regular basis. And I know you do, you said you manage marine and terrestrial areas and you guys actually manage the World Heritage Sites. And you said one of them was, both of them are Half Moon Key and the Blue Hole. Right. You know, up there so and this one is half moon key right that's half moon key and can you tell us a bit about it sure so half moon key actually is the oldest um protected area in country um it was established um in the it was established i think in 1981 as the first protected area um belize is a fairly young country we weren't independent until september of 1981 so this was the first protected area under our first legislation um, that outlined national protected areas it is um as you can see that large green littoral forest that's located on the island that actually is the rookery for the red phase white uh the red-footed white phase boobies so just like how the galapagos has the blue-footed boobies we have red-footed boobies on half moon key so the island actually um the shape has changed over the past years um that little hook that's on the west side didn't um didn't exist before so it's a really interesting example of how hurricanes have changed the demographics of the island but it's a beautiful island it's actually not very close to anything it is the farthest most territory of the country um, oh, wow. it's 55 miles from the mainland so it has a lot of logistical issues when we talk about management so yeah do you get tourism to that island then that being that far yes yes we do it is wow. surprising there are there's actually the allure of it is that it's only seven miles away from the blue hole so that's the other image that we had sent um so the blue hole is yes that's the world-known, iconic Belizean um, image that everyone uses. The Blue Hole is, is world-renowned because it was explored by Cousteau in the Calypso when he was going around the Caribbean exploring. Um, it's, it's actually a bucket kind of bucket list dive site um, because when you get to about 100 feet in the dive, you have selectite and salgamite. So it actually is a cave that the top, the lid has kind of fallen in. Yeah. And so to be a cave diver, you know, that takes years of, of experience. So you can get to about 110 feet and you can see stalactites, stalagmites, you can go around them um, as a dive. It's a very deep dive, obviously, but it, it's with an open dive certificate, you're you're able to dive it. And, and I think that's the real allure of it. It's, it's never um it's as close to cave diving as you'll get without having to be super certified yeah um, most tour guides they do the deep dive and then you go do some surface time yeah so you have the deep dive and we have um the normal tour package that you see in belize is that you'll do the blue hole first you'll do the deep dive and then you'll do surface time on the island actually okay. so the island is um, a combination. At the island, then they take you, after you've done enough surface time, they take you to the Hapmuki wall. Um, okay. And the wall is a typical coral wall. So it's, it's 
it's very representative of that habitat. And then they take you for your last dive. You do a shallow, like 40 feet dive um, to a place called the aquarium. And the name says it all. <laughs> so it's really a nice combination that the tourists um, normally do as part of their package. So you do a super deep dive. Um, blue hole, what you're really seeing is stalactites, stalagmites. You're getting that vibe of eeriness, actually. Um, and then you get a wall dive. So you see a coral reef structure, the wall structure, and then you do a shallow, just a lot of fish and turtles and shallow reef corals. So it's a really nice package, and so they do it as a combo, um, okay. blue hole and half moon peak. So then so what are some of the challenges with that, like with having tourism to these protected areas and these places? Well, there's several um, challenges. Uh, one is obviously always going to be the logistics of the site. So um, with tourists, you have to have amenities. So we have compost toilets. Again, that's because of World Heritage. We have to be very eco-friendly, um, we have to maintain our footprint. So we would have, we've had requests before where you should build palapas and you should, and the World Heritage designation is, is not really um, suited for all of that. But we have right. put in picnic tables. We, we have really nice coconut trees. We just make sure that the coconuts aren't on the trees. Um, <laughs> Uh, but yeah, we we have um, logistically, I think just any construction we do on site um, is super expensive because it's just so far away. Um, if there's emergencies, so we really do have to work closely with our tour operators. Um, we have a helipad on the island that's really not for usage other than emergencies, yeah. but you're doing diving. so. Um, yeah. We have had to put in a lot of safety measures because of just the nature of the activities that happen. Um, but for us, I think it's it's creating that feeling of going to the end of the world to a remote beach. Your cell phone doesn't work. Nothing works, yeah. um, which is fantastic for the tourists. Um, as the operator, it's a bit nerve wracking. So we've had to invest into like satellite internet and and mm -hmm. just really like the logistics for me as a manager is where I feel that um, we have some of the greatest hurdles and challenges. Wow. And so how are these areas utilized by the local communities or is it just typically tourists that go there? No. Um, so it's a mixed use site. Um, the two protected areas are actually located within the Lighthouse Reef Atoll. So Belize has three atolls um, outside of our barrier reef. Uh, you have Turnef, you have Glovers, and you have Lighthouse Reef Atoll. So Lighthouse Reef Atoll is actually the smallest in terms of the narrowest. It's a lot of just patch reefs, and, and um, it's really good for conch habitat. So Belize, like Bahamas, has a very productive conch fisheries. Um, it is CITES regulated, um, so there are quotas and there's fisheries regulations in place. Um, but it, it is that is one of the primary um, products that is extracted from the atoll. So we have local fishermen. It is very unique in how they fish. Um, yes, as you can see, they are from the northern part of the country, so they are actually farther than the Belize city. So they're about 60 65 miles maybe from, wow. from the site. So they go in their sailboats and they have these canoes. They have up to eight men on the boat. They live on the boat for the 10, eight to 10 days they're fishing out there. 
Um, and then they just harvest. They harvest conks if it's in season and then um, a lobster when lobster is in season and some fin fish. But um, if you're going that far, you're going for high-end product, which is really conch and lobster. So these fishermen yeah. are part of our stakeholders. So do you have any challenges in regards to fishermen not following regulations? Like how, when it comes time to enforce some of these rules and regulations, like the conch and crawfish season, um, lobster season, how do you find that goes? Because obviously you so said this is very far out. Do you have other fishermen reporting or is it that you find out when they bring them back in? Like how does that work with this World Heritage Site and multi-use area? So for the past, I would say six years, we've really been taking a grassroots approach. Um, okay. we, we use what we call boat to boat, which is a door to door kind of idea. Um, so our community liaison officer, we have him, he goes out, he normally goes out two to three times a year, maybe even four, depending on funding and seasonalities, um, where he basically, we go in our boat and while they're fishing, so we go early morning or in the afternoon when they're done fishing, and we approach the boats. And so we explain to them what is the data coming out of our scientific data. So we um, do pre and post season data collection for conch and lobster. And so okay. we use that in infographics and easily digestible information. Um, so we share that with them. We talk about legislation, any changes that has happened, reminding them of seasonality um, and really getting that kind of um, building trust um, with the fisher folks and with our stakeholders. Um, it has turned out really well for us in that it has actually become a um, intel source um, for enforcement. Nice. So those who trust us and know that uh, we do our job and that we are as transparent as we can be and we try to practice um, equity across the bar, they really do tell us a lot in terms of you know there is a weird boat around here we've been seeing him um mm -hmm. you know we don't we don't see any of the markers for the vessel registration so they really it has turned into a, a form of, of intel for us um and it, it to me that's just an indication that it works really well in that they trust us and that they know that it's being told in confidence it's all anonymous so no one knows, but we give them a number that they can call and give us any information they have. But I mean, you'll always have bad eggs. You'll always have that rotten apple in the bunch that you have to really deal with. Um, and we work closely with the fisheries department and our staff are actually fisheries officers. So they enforce the law um, and we go out there and we actively um, patrol. Uh, we use all kinds of data. Now we're using smart which is uh, spatial monitoring. So we're getting into that. We've also partnered um, with different organizations to, to see how best we can cover the area. So like the Belize Coast Guard has been also present with us. So, and just to kind of go back to what you said about the fishermen that actually trust you guys, give you the information you need. Did you have a hard time gaining these fishermen's trust? Like, do you find that the fisher folk take longer to trust you guys to start giving information or did you find it very easy to to get that relationship um it took time honestly it takes time like i said we've been doing this for five to six years and i would say in the beginning it took 
a year or two maybe of them constantly seeing us or constant presence um you know sharing information with them um it takes a few times for them to say oh yes you know the guys at Belize Audubon take us serious and they do follow up with intel because that's the other thing they can give you intel but if you just ignore it or don't follow up they know um they tend to have small circles and mm -hmm. so they know um and and so we found that the more they told us and the more we acted on what they told us it it became kind of a feeding relationship it the trust is really where where you have to build the trust um but i would say it took two years to build that trust it was not overnight for sure um but i would say the point where i knew that it worked was Three years ago, the fisheries department said we've met our CITES quota and so we're closing the season early um, because what comes was remaining was largely juvenile and the data was showing that. So we closed the season two. Our season normally closes the end of June. We closed it in March. So that's that's significant in terms of an early closure. Um, and the fishermen were like, are you all going to be out here? Are you going to be monitoring? Are you going to make sure that no one else is extracting while we're not here? And we're like, yeah. no, we're going to, we're going to have a presence. We know that, you know, there's no, there's no fishing. So, um, and, and we do have, um, successful prosecution as well. So we work closely with the fisheries department. And I think that has also helped because they're like, we know that something will come out of it if there's, you know, if we can catch them, if there's enough data, all of that. I think that's what you said is very important, that following up with what they tell you is very, very crucial. Oftentimes you find initially fishermen communities, I mean, they can be very receptive, very cooperative, but if if you're not, you know, if it's a two-way street, right? Exactly. Yeah, but it sounds like you guys are doing so much great work there. Thank you. And what would be your recommendations to other people in the network who may face some of the similar challenges with, you know, either the distance of your area enforcement, like if you had to just kind of give just general tips and tricks or advice to other MPA managers, World Heritage Site managers, what would you say would be the number one, two, three, or one tip that you would give them? Well, I think World Heritage, um, a lot of it is is maintaining it. So I think my main one tip that I would give towards the World Heritage is know your regulations, know what World Heritage allows, doesn't allow, know um, know your what you can and cannot do. So like I was telling you with tourism, we can't really have major footprints, but what can we do? How can we maximize? World Heritage is a name brand. We we I don't think everyone has realized that it's. Yeah. I have been told stories anecdotally of people who are who say, oh, I'm going to World Heritage Sites and I'm just going to go visit all these UNESCO World Heritage Sites. So it's a marketing branding tool that we need yeah. to maximize. So I think from that end, um, that's why I'm saying know what your regulations are, know what you're allowed to do so that you can maximize the brand. World Heritage is is we're managing something of international value and we need to know what that is and we need to market it. Um, so from a financial point of view, I think that plays in as well. Um, the second point I would think, um, or second tip I would give is determine your priorities. Um, like I said, I know that financing is something that people are having a hard time with. Determine what your priorities are. Enforcement normally is a high priority. 
Um, but enforcement is not only heavy-handed, right? For us at Blaze Arvon, we think of enforcement with three three kind of prongs, right? You have enforcement as in the traditional, you know, I'm out there patrolling and trying to bust people, kind of trying to catch that, like a policeman kind of enforcement. But you also have soft enforcement where you're educating and informing people. So the community part of it is really important. Um, because you're building that trust. People know what you do. People understand what you do and why you do it. Um, right. That gets you buy-in. And I would say a lot of people will buy in more than you think. It's a, probably a small percentage that are doing illegal activity. Most yeah. people are just hardworking, honest fisher folk who are trying to make a living. And so once they understand that you're there for them and for the resources, um, I think that's vital. And then the third aspect to that, which uh, I'm not really talking about, but it's um, alternatives. So if you know fishing is getting hard out there, then we have written a couple grants where we've looked at alternatives so that a fisherman, this is this is our take on it. A fisherman is a fisherman is a fisherman. He's not gonna stop. You no. know, it's in his blood, it's who he is. We have to understand that he loves the sea. But the reality is it might not be sustainable for his lifestyle anymore. There might not be, there might be more people in, in the fishing industry. There might not be enough product, which is something people don't want to hear, but it's possible. I mean, you'd have to look at the data depending on the country, but what you do is you create an alternate source. So what that means is I can still fish, but I can follow the laws and the rules because I don't need to fish for my livelihood completely. I have another source of money. Yeah. So we talk a lot about supplemental income to our fisher folk. Um, and some of it is we we, we appeal to the wives. <laughs> We're like, what can you do? Would you like micro, we've looked at micro grants and all of that before. So mm -hmm. setting up small businesses, you know, little mom and pop shops and that kind of stuff, which is, which is really something that they can sustain. Um, so we look at, like I said, it, it's all in line with making enforcement a priority, but obviously enforcement is not just heavy-handed policing. Yeah. Um, but I do think that if you can do that well, the resources are going to definitely benefit in the long run. For sure. So two major areas, like I said, from a world heritage, make the most of your designation, but figure out what you can and cannot do and mm -hmm. look at the branding of the world heritage. Um, I know a lot of us, we've had problems with that and that we get on the endangered, the lease was on the endangered list because the country doesn't make it a priority, but you have to put it on the, on the table. You have to, you know, you're, it's like you're being given this gift and it's international value, but sometimes we don't realize that. We don't realize what we're being given or what we have, what, what yeah. we as a country have been gifted by God. You know, yeah. so I think that's where we need to, to know what it is. Um, and then, like I said, I really do feel prioritizing to get through COVID. That's our lingo, right? Prioritize what's of importance um, so that you can keep the resources that we have and the presence that we have. Yeah, and I, and I love that point you made, your first major point where you said, sometimes we just don't realize the gift we've been given. And I think a lot of Caribbean countries suffer from that, where 
We love to boast our beautiful resources, our beautiful oceans, all of these things that we have beautiful that are naturally occurring. But when it comes down to like government prioritization, it's like you have to keep fighting to get conservation, get environmental issues up at the top of the table because it's really for most of us, you know, tourism is some of our main industries in some of our countries, most of our countries. So we're not prioritizing these natural resources that are funding. That's that's what makes people come to our countries. We all have these beautiful things and features and, and we have to keep fighting that good fight, helping communities realize that now you need supplemental income because the world is changing. And then also Mm -hmm. pushing and fighting to get conservation issues on the table to help sustain the country as a whole. So yeah, I loved that point that you made. Yeah, that's Before really we, being what we have to focus on. I agree. The whole yeah. region, the whole region. Yeah, that's what I said. All of us, yeah. the whole region. That's what we're known for. When you hear Caribbean, mm-hmm. the first thing people think about is beaches and sipping a pina colada under a coconut yes. tree, out of a coconut. You know? Yes, yes, I agree. <laughs> Definitely. But before we close, we do have our one last question, which is a bit of a fun one. Right. Who do you think would win in a fight between any seabird of your choice and an octopus? And why do you think which animal you choose would win? <laughs> oh, that's a hard one. Um, it depends. I would vouch for the octopus because the octopus is smart. Okay. And I know that, that that I would go with the octopus. But if he gets out of the water, seabirds yeah. are quite annoying. So <laughs> they're wonderful, but they'll be, once they're, mm-hmm. they're, um, we have frigates and boobies, and I just sit there and watch them in amazement. They have a they have a horrible yeah. they have a horrible, wonderful relationship. The frigates can't dive, but the boobies can. So the frigates follow the boobies mm-hmm. around on Half Moon Key, and when the booby dives for the fish, the frigate basically start attacking the booby and pirating his food. So I'll give seabirds wow. their worth. Yeah, they're they're kind of conniving <laughs> in their own way. But, but the Sounds like those forget birds. Yeah, yeah I, I think so. You have a good point, though. The forget bird definitely sounds like it'll be able to adapt and manipulate to the octopus's moves if we were to pick the frigate and the booby sounds like it's going to be good at going down and pulling the octopus out the water so that's that's interesting to think about yeah but thank you so much amanda for doing this and thank you for all of our viewers who have been tuning into this series definitely stay connected with mpa connect through watching this podcast you can find that on their facebook which is mpaconnect.caribbean or on their Instagram, which is NBA Next underscore Caribbean. Thank you so much. And you guys all have a great day.